Does anyone else besides me dread taking tests? Like growing up in school, for me, the, 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 my desire for perfection along with wanting to please my teachers and to please my parents would awful, often wound me up pretty tightly as the test date approached. And if the test happened to be a speech before the class, then dread really descended upon me, threatening to render me completely useless. And then the dread of possible pop quizzes added to the torture. <laughs> Teacher would say, be prepared each class, then read the materials, do the homework, be ready anytime for a quiz. And yet, what is the common response from a class when the teacher says it's time for a pop quiz? Oh, come on, give us five more minutes to study, please. Take out your pencils and clear your desk. Thankfully, most of the time, I did do my homework, I did study, I did work hard, so I wasn't often derailed by the pop quizzes. But the question remains, why is it that we are so often surprised by the tests that come in life? We should have been prepared for them. I think it's arrogance coupled with not paying attention. As I read through the scriptures and observe people in life, it appears the problem is the same for many on a regular basis. We are wrapping up uh, in the next two weeks our study of 1 Peter, standing firm in the truth, learning to stand firm in every aspect of our life. Christians, we are to live holy as God is holy because of the living hope that we have in the work of Jesus that has secured our eternity. We are to follow Jesus wherever he leads because his wounds brought us healing and allowed us to return to the comfort and peace of being near to the good shepherd. We are to stand firm in our relationships with our spouses, our neighbors, and even our governments, showing them love because of Jesus. And we are to endure hardships in the power of the Holy Spirit. The question is how do we endure hardships? How do we endure hardships? We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, and Peter says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. How is it that you respond to hardships in life? Are you surprised? Perhaps you're like Diego in this text thread. Friend says, how do you think you did? Diego says, on what? The final, bro. It's tomorrow. It was today, it's in 15. May 8th, 10 15. Question mark, question mark, question mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Diego. Diego is busy now. <laughs> are you paying attention? Or are you going through life regularly shocked that hardships and tests show up? You who claim the name of Christ have insight into the battles waging in the heavens and on earth. The scripture is full of examples of the Lord testing his people to make them look more like him. Remember Abraham. Our family just read this story the other day as we were walking through the, the Jesse Tree Advent uh, book. Genesis 22, beginning verse 1, records this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance 
Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, my father. And he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God and since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Every time I read that story, I am dumbfounded at the method of the test and Abraham's reaction. When you read that, are you not at least taken back by the fact that there's not a recording of Abraham's processing here? We only have a command from God and Abraham getting up early in the morning to take his only son and prepare to offer him as a sacrifice, just as God said. See, it seems Abraham is not surprised by this test and willingly obeys and passes the test. Perhaps it is from other times in life when he was tested and failed and is now learning to trust his creator. He knew God would provide. After all, the very boy that God told him to sacrifice was a miraculous gift that God had given. He was a physical reminder of God keeping his promises no matter what difficulty may be present. If we pay attention, if we learn to be thankful for what God has provided, if we learn to trust our good, good Father who gives perfect gifts, then we do not have to be surprised by the next test, even if it challenges our thinking about his provision. And then we can welcome the test properly when we truly understand their purposes. We can welcome the test properly when we truly understand their purposes. Romans 5, 3-5 says, We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Tests are part of life. They help us learn. They help us check on our growth in wisdom. They help us walk in the Spirit and learn to depend on the Lord. Do not be surprised at the job loss. Do not be surprised at the devastating medical discovery. Do not be surprised at whatever other hardship may come, but instead, learn to rejoice amid the test. 
Learn to rejoice amid the test. Verse 13 says, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. As those who possess God's love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, we have the opportunity to rejoice in the midst of, most, of the most difficult of times. And this is possible if we take these moments as opportunities to share in the sufferings of Christ. Who is it that we are supposed to resemble? It's not a trick question. Jesus, it's not a trick question. <laughs> Jesus. We're supposed to resemble Jesus. We are called to be holy as God is holy. And he sent his son to live as a man to show us what it is to follow and do the will of the Father. If Jesus suffered, then why would we expect anything less for ourselves in order to fulfill the Lord's will? Philippians 2, in verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come to, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Was it easy for Jesus to go to the cross? No. No. But sometimes I think that we miss the reality of Jesus being a man. We make flippant statements about him being God, so of course he could do that. In many ways, this can become a, a way for us to excuse our own behavior instead of learning to be holy. Yes, it is true that there is an intricate tension in the person of Jesus, the God-man. Yet we must not take his deity to mean that he didn't really suffer as a man. Remember Jesus in the garden before his arrest. Jesus had just informed Peter of his upcoming denial. And in John 9, or Matthew 26, sorry, beginning of verse 36 says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet... Not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. As God, Jesus knew Peter would fail. He knew Judas was the betrayer. He knew he was on his way to die. Yet as a man, none of this felt good. None of this was enjoyable. Is it fun to lose a job over a false accusation? 
Is it enjoyable to be betrayed by someone you call a friend? No. Those are terrible moments in life. Yet for those of us who know the Lord Jesus, we can rejoice as we share in his sufferings. Rejoicing comes as we lament in truth over the pains of life and seek to do the will of the Father. He knows our pains. And our pain can give us a glimpse of how he suffered on our behalf. Our pain can give us a glimpse of how he suffered on our behalf. Wayne shared this book with me to help help us think about dealing with hardships. It's called What Do You Do With a Problem by Kobe Yamada. I want to read this for us real fast here. It begins with, I don't know how it happened, but one day I had a problem. I didn't want it. I didn't ask for it. I really didn't like having a problem, but it was there. Why is it that here? What does it want? What do you do with problem, I thought. I wanted to make it go away. I shoot it. I scowled at it. I tried ignoring it, but nothing worked. I started to worry about my problem. What if it swallows me up? What if my problem sneaks up and gets me? What if it takes away all of my things? I worried a lot. I worried about what would happen. I worried about what could happen. I worried about this and I worried about that. And the more I worried, the bigger my problem became. I wished it would just disappear. I tried everything I could to hide from it. I even found ways to disguise myself, but it still found me. And the more I avoided my problem, the more I saw it everywhere. I thought about it all the time. I didn't feel good at all. I couldn't take it anymore. This has to stop, I declared. Maybe I was making my problem bigger and scarier than it actually was. After all, my problem hadn't really swallowed me up or attacked me. I realized that I had to face it. So even though I didn't want to, even though I was really afraid, I got ready and I tackled my problem. When I got face to face with it, I discovered something. My problem wasn't what I thought it was. I discovered it had something beautiful inside. My problem held an opportunity. It was an opportunity for me to learn and to grow, to be brave, to do something. It showed me that it was important to look closely because some opportunities only come once. So now I see my problems differently. I'm not afraid of them anymore because I know their secret. Every problem has an opportunity for something good. You just have to look for it. Every problem is an opportunity for something good. You just have to look for it. When we, as believers in Jesus, walk through hardships, we have the opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ because of something good. 
His sufferings allow us to see God's glory. That's the goodness. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Romans 8, 16 to 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be also be glorified with him. If you have trusted in Jesus for salvation, your eternity is secure. You have a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Rejoice because you will see God's glory. And because you will see God's glory, you have an opportunity to glorify now. And also to help others see his goodness now, no matter what your problem. Even if that problem entails being ridiculed for Jesus' sake. Because that opportunity brings blessing. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Matthew 5, 11 through 12 says, You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There is blessing in suffering for the name of Christ. There's blessing in suffering for the name of Christ because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is reminiscent of Isaiah 11 too. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. See, if we fear the Lord, is there anyone else that we need to fear? No. No, we are secure and there is great reward in heaven when we suffer for Christ's sake. And that reward and blessing extends beyond us to include others. Remember the story of Stephen. Acts 7 and 8 record the stoning of Stephen and subsequent events. Acts 7, beginning of verse 54, says, When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Look, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he fell asleep. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, dragging, drag off men and women and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. There was great joy in that city. The aftermath of the stoning of Stephen was a time of persecution which scattered many believers. 
And that scattering led to more people having the opportunity to hear about Jesus bringing great joy. See, if we submit to the Father's will and walk through hardship with joy, endure the ridicule, the ridicule for the name of Christ with courage and with peace, then we receive blessing and we have the opportunity to bless others. And within that glorious call, Peter warns us of another kind of suffering. Verse 15, 1 Peter 4 says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. In our everyday lives, we can easily slip into patterns of sin which always brings us suffering. Our laziness and idleness can lead us to chasing after addictions which bring destruction to us and our loved ones. Our selfishness breaks trust in relationships. Living in fear leads us to isolation and becoming disconnected. In the middle of a difficult circumstance, you and I have the opportunity to either bless the Lord or curse Him. We can either sin in our pains and persecutions or we can walk faithfully. Listen to the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says, Peter stressed that persecution was no excuse for lawlessness. Christians were not to retaliate. Physical violence was not to be met by murder. Confiscation of property was not to be compensated for by theft. No matter what their trials, Christians were to do nothing that would justify punishing them as criminals. They were not to suffer as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Even interfering in other people's affairs is out of place for Christians, end quote. As you examine your life, are you suffering for the Lord or because you have disobeyed the Lord? Reminder, Peter said in verse 17 of chapter 3, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let us stand firm in the truth, and if we must suffer, then let it be for the sake of God and His will, and not for our own sinful works. Shame comes from doing what is wrong. Glory comes from suffering for the Lord's sake. Our righteous judge is worthy of glory, and we have an opportunity to live shame-free as we learn to follow Him. 1 Peter 4, 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. See, it's common for people to, to be ashamed of their suffering. But if suffering for the Lord's sake is not understood and addressed properly, we can fall into a trap of isolating ourselves for fear of the perception of others. Suffering as a Christian, though, we can be used by God to glorify him by submitting to his will. The story of Jesus healing the blind man in John 9 is a reminder to, to us, a reminder to us that we do not need to be ashamed because of suffering that is not because of our own sin. John 9, 1 through 3 says this, as he was passing by, he saw a blind man from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now, this isn't to say that this man and his parents were innocent. We all know that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But this is to say, Jesus made clear, that this blindness was not because of his direct sin. It was to show the works of God. 
Fact is, though, that our sin does have consequences, even if our eternity is secure. And that is why Peter states this. 1 Peter 4, 16 through 18, 17 and 18. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Listen again to the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Peter referred to persecution and suffering as trials that refine and prove one's faith, if reacted to in the will of God. Now he added that God allows persecutions and disciplinary judgment to purify the lives of those in the family of God. If believers need disciplinary earthly judgments, if it begins with us, a first-class condition which assumes the reality of the premise, how much more will those who do not obey the gospel, the ungodly and the sinner, deserve everlasting judgment? Peter quoted the Septuagint rendering of Proverbs 11.31, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved to emphasize God's disciplinary demands of his children. The vicissitudes of life are part of God's constant care, yet from a human perspective, discipline is always hard. Peter is not teaching that salvation is earned through personal trials or works, but simply that those who are saved are not exempt from temporary disciplinary judgments, which are the natural consequences of sin. The writer of Hebrews also supports Peter. Endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as sons, end quote. Your God loves you. He disciplines you if you are acting contrary to his will, and he loves you enough to allow you to go through fiery trials, tests, in order to help you shine his light brighter. Trust him and do good. Trust him and do good. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. What is God's will? To love him, to love others, and to do good works for which you were created. To love him, to love others, and to do good works for which you were created. In his book, Live Not By Lies, Rod Dreher Highly recommend this book. It recounts a time when Vaclav Benda was thrown into a prison for fighting for human rights against the communist Czechoslovakian state. I want to read a section about the, the, uh, after Benda was put into prison. Camilla is his wife. Camilla once received a letter from her husband in prison in which he said that the government was talking about the possibility of setting him free early if he agreed to immigrate with his family to the West. I wrote back to tell him no, that he would be better off staying in prison to fight for what we believe is true, she tells me. Think of it, this woman was raising six children alone in a communist totalitarian state, but she affirmed by her own willingness to sacrifice and to sacrifice a materially more comfortable and politically free life for her children for the greater good. If you fail to do this, thinking that you are making things easier for your kids, it might backfire in a big way. We knew people who gave in for the sake of their children, said Patrick. This is one of the kids. They wanted their children to have a better education, so they compromised their values and entered the Communist Party. But in the end, they alienated themselves from their own children. I saw this when I was in college in 1989 during the Velvet Revolution. Some students positively hated that their parents who made those compromises for them. Today, the children and grandchildren of Dr. Benda have the letters sent to their mother and grandmother, respectively, from prison. They are written testimony of how the political prisoner's rock-solid faith helped him endure captivity. These letters are a catechism for his descendants, made vivid because they came from, not, from the pen not of a plaster saint, but of a flesh-and-blood hero. 
In one of his letters, he tells us about how being in prison gave him new insights into the gospel, says Patrick. He talks about how Jesus said in his passion, not my will, but thy will be done, Father. My dad's letter shows how he believed that he was giving testimony by suffering persecution. This helped us all understand the example of the Lord. Dad believed that even though things were bad and he was suffering and that he didn't see positive consequences from his actions, that there was a good God who will eventually win the battle, adds Marquetta, one of the Benda daughters. God will eventually win, even though I may not see it in my life, so my suffering is not meaningless because I am part of a greater battle that will be victorious in the end. That is what our father showed us by his life. But father believed that the communists would fall and that he would live to see it happen, says Patrick. That's true, says Camilla. But he also had a conviction that to destroy a communist regime was his mission in life. He was always talking with God and asking what is the right way. He always struggled to see the right values and to live up to them. This is something very important about my father, says Marquetta. He believed that he was accountable before God, not before people. It didn't matter to him when other people didn't understand why he did the things he did. He acted in the sight of God. And you know the Bible gave him strength because it is full of stories of the prophets and others going beyond the border of what was comprehensible or understandable to people for the sake of obeying the Lord, end quote. See, the Bible and history are filled with saints who have gone before us to walk through life and glorify God in the midst of hardships. Men like Daniel who stood before the King Darius willing to go into the den of lions for the sake of worshiping his God only. Women who, like Mary who took on the call of God to care and nurture Jesus, the child. Now, I, I know we might all want the perfect children in our homes, but I wonder how difficult that wait might have been to be confronted every moment of every day that you are in need. A unique way to be shown that you are desperate for a savior and that this child before you is him. That cannot be an easy task. And there are men and women like Vaclav and Camilla Benda who desire to help people to be free. They paid dearly while obeying the Lord and standing up to a totalitarian regime. The Lord uses each of these people to remind us that overcoming hardships is possible by the power of God. Walking in His Spirit. We can learn from them. And we can also learn from the, Lord, the leaders that the Lord gives us in the present. Leaders that He puts beside us to grow up alongside of them. Peter says, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive, you will receive the unfounding crane, crown of glory. Listen to Pastor Wayne's comments uh, from his notes on this uh, section here. Wayne says, all this teaching on persecution applies to each Christian. However, Peter particularly relates these lessons to elders. The therefore tells us that God's words to elders are connected with the persecution teaching. Why does God connect being an elder to being persecuted? Two reasons occur to me. The exemplary role of, as leaders in the congregation makes elders a prime target. 
They have a big target on their chest. Two, the job of being an elder is fraught with pain. Trust me on this score, being an elder is hard. Because of their role and the difficulty of their job, elders will very likely face persecution if anyone does, end quote. We all need others to learn from in wrestling with the tests in life. And the elders are a group of men set aside in the local body of the church to help us grow in our faith. Peter says that the elders are to shepherd God's flock, which is an incredibly difficult task. Sheep are stubborn and seem to find ways to get into trouble very quickly. Watch this clip. Young shepherd pulling a sheep out of a ditch. And he's out. Whee! <laughs> right back into the ditch. People aren't so different, are we? <laughs> Not so different. Leading a group of people like guiding sheep is no easy task. Yet the elders are called to the difficult task, which is filled with hardships and persecution. They are to pay attention to the dangers ahead. Help pull us out of the ditches, sometimes more than once. And lead us to the calm waters of God's peace and the green grass of God's word for nourishment and live as examples of rejoicing always, no matter the circumstances. And they are to do this willingly, not greedily, nor arrogantly. These men are called to stand firm in the hardships of leadership, and it would do us well to honor those who have willingly taken on the mantle of this role to help guide us. I personally have the privilege of meeting with our elders of Frisco Bible every month, along with other times that I get to spend with them to laugh and to learn with them. I've watched them wrestle with how to lovingly care for stubborn church members. I have watched them debate on the best ways to move forward in teaching sound doctrine at Frisco Bible while trying to expand our reach. I've watched them make tough decisions, which we knew several people might not like, but in the wisdom of God, it seemed like the best option. And I've seen their hearts change to reflect God's glory more clearly as they confess their sins and weaknesses and submit to the Lord's will. No one, not even them, would claim that these men are perfect, yet they are godly men who love Jesus and are seeking to do his will above their own. And I would like for us to take a moment to recognize and pray for them as they face hardships in their own lives and in caring for our redeemed community here. Are there any elders in this room at the moment? There's, one, at least, there's two. Would you guys please stand up? I want to pray for these men. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these men. We ask that you guard their hearts, that you would encourage them in their service of you, that you would continue to show them their need for you, show them any wicked way in them that they might become more like your son. And as you sanctify them in your truth, we ask that you would give them courage to lead us by the power of the Holy Spirit to follow you and you only. Teach them and us to be humble so that no matter the storms in life, we might bless your name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Please give them a hand. First Peter 5, 5 says, in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We are to clothe ourselves in humility. The hardships are coming. 
The pop quizzes and tests in life are right around the corner. Are you prepared for the test to come? Are you prepared? Humility is key. Submitting to the Lord's will is required. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, believer, to empower you to stand firm in the hardships of life. Are you resting in him? Or are you running ragged in the futile attempts to numb the pains of the world? The weary world can rejoice because God came near to offer us life. Standing firm in hardships begins by taking on the humility of our Lord. The third candle of our Advent wreath is for humility. To remind us that we would take on the humility of our Lord. Have you trusted in Jesus? If so, do not be surprised by the trials, but rest in the sufficient grace of God. Rest in the knowledge of the residing Holy Spirit of God who seals you, who seals your salvation no matter the hardship. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Perhaps you're listening today while being crushed by the weight of your sin and running ragged to prove yourself worthy of God's grace. Trying to do enough good things to earn your way into heaven. Stop it. Stop it. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T, stop it. Fall at the feet of the Messiah who came to earth to pay for your debt, your debt of death. He rose again three days later, and now he offers you eternal life to walk in holiness and peace and the ability to rejoice no matter what comes your way. Trust in Jesus for salvation right now and rest in the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, I ask that you would help us rest in that truth. That you sent your one and only son to sacrifice him on our behalf. To give me a chance at life that I could not earn on my own, that I could not do good enough things to get. You came down to save me. And I ask that you would help us to wrestle and rest in that truth. That the perfect gift, ultimate perfect gift is your son. And by believing in him, by trusting in him for salvation, we can have life and have it abundantly. And I ask that you would help us to learn to live that way. That we would face every hardship, every test, every trial, that we would face it with grace and mercy and joy because we get to share with your son. Because our eternity is secure, our hope is sure. Father, for anyone here that's listening that does not know you, I ask that you would pierce their heart and help them see your grace and your mercy and allow them to trust your son that they might have life, that they might be made new to walk in joy and in peace. Help us to bless others, God, with this knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen.